0: My name is Deepa Mani. In the previous episode, we talked about what are some of the unconscious biases that plague women. Now, let's talk about what's the solution. Debiasing is difficult. Awareness does not appear to help. Suppression backfires. Diversity training programs may be useful, but we cannot just stop at training and pointing out these unconscious biases because then we run the risk of normalizing them. The majority realizes that everyone is biased and they're not at fault and nothing changes for the discriminated groups. So what should we do? When I ask what should we do about this in my class, many of my students, even women, offer solutions like this. Make women aware, mentor them, ask them to speak up. But you see, the problem with these solutions is that they take the onus off of organizations and place it on women for change to happen. Lean in, like Sheryl Sandberg says. But the onus should be on the organization, not the individual. So what should organizations do? They need to change structures, they need to change policies, and they need to change practices so that people are forced to address biases. Take the case of performance evaluation. Like we mentioned earlier, women lose out in subjective evaluations. They receive more open-ended positive performance words, but those do not translate into positive numerical ratings. Therefore, in selecting or promoting people, research recommends that you decide on weights to be attached to each criterion before evaluating candidates. Research also finds that joint or comparative evaluations are more true to women's potential than separate or standalone evaluations of performance. Comparative evaluations focus the evaluator's attention on individual performance instead of group stereotypes that receive more focus in separate or standalone evaluations. Other research-backed practices include providing feedback regularly, documenting it, and checking to see if standards are the same for all. Similarly, with talent selection, check your pool of shortlists. One study of 598 finalists for university teaching positions found this relationship between the quality of the pool and the actual hiring decision. If three out of four of the shortlists were women, the likelihood of hiring a woman was 67%. If two of the shortlists in the pool were women, the likelihood of hiring a woman was 50%. But if one of four of the shortlists were women, The likelihood of hiring a woman was not 25%, it was zero. Therefore, it's important that you check your pool of shortlists to make sure that there is a critical mass of women from whom you can select and the likelihood of selection is higher. While these are examples of objective practices that address bias, it is important that in implementing them, we also rethink what we know about women. Only then can organizations change the circumstances that give rise to different behaviors in the first place. For example, do you believe that women place a higher value on families than men do? No, research shows that men and women's desires and challenges about work or family balance are remarkably similar. It is what they experience at work once they become parents that puts them in very different places. Women are seen as needing support, whereas men are more likely to get the message that they need to man up and not voice stress and fatigue. Accordingly, some men quietly reduce hours or travel and hope it gets unnoticed, while others simply concede doubling down at work and limiting the time they spend on family responsibilities. Either way, they maintain a reputation that keeps them on an upward trajectory. Mothers are often expected indeed encouraged to rush back at work. They are rerouted into less taxing roles. In other words, lower status and less career enhancing clients. Similarly, we say women lack the desire or ability to negotiate. Women don't ask. Again, it's a belief that is simply not true. Multiple studies show that women are less embedded in networks that offer opportunities to gather information and garner support. And when people lack access to contacts and information, they are disadvantaged in negotiations. They don't know what's on the table. They don't know what's within the realm of possibility or that a chance to strike or settle exists. Many women will resonate with the experience that when they speak up in meetings, their ideas are either ignored until a man restates them or shoots them down quickly if they contain even the slightest flaw. In contrast, when men's ideas were flawed, research finds that the meritorious elements are salvaged. Therefore, research finds that women feel the need to be 110% sure of their ideas before they venture to share them. Therefore, you're more likely to receive ideas from women in individual one-on-one settings rather than in groups. In groups where being smart is the coin of the realm, it seems better to remain silent than to have one's ideas repeatedly dismissed. These are all examples of beliefs about gender that organizations need to change. Absent a change in these beliefs, change in practices will yield limited results. And finally, it's important to keep in mind that diversity without inclusion is meaningless. It's important. To foster a culture where we value different others, where we encourage superordinate goals that go beyond an organization or a team or a business unit. It's important to build trust and psychological safety for diverse groups, and it's also important to reduce their salience by not making them representatives of their groups, but rather allow their individual identities to flourish much more than their group identities. In doing so, It is also important to socialize this idea that when workplace practices aim to support underrepresented groups, it does not mean they are unfairly biased against overrepresented groups. It just means that we need more than good intentions to change biased behavior. There are many policy lessons too for us in India. We need to educate more women here. Research shows that among wage workers, returns from education are substantially greater for women than men in India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan. This could reflect the scarcity of educated women combined with the existence of jobs that require educated women. They are also more likely to move to the formal sector when educated, and they are likely to pass on improvements in health, infrastructure, and various other policies to their children we also need more role models for our girls. A study by Esther Duflo in India found that in villages, where leadership positions on village councils were reserved for women. Adolescent girls were more likely to want a job that required an education, more likely to want to marry after age 18, and more likely to want to be something other than a housewife. Repeated exposure to female leaders can positively influence both teenage girls' educational attainment and their career aspirations. We also need policies that bring in more gender wage parity. We need policies that bring in more women and retain women in science. And we need policies that deliver on many equitable outcomes across genders. We also need to look inwards and change within ourselves as individuals. We need to be more self-aware and identify for ourselves as women, a vision of the best version of ourselves. We need to be in the driver's seat in our personal and professional lives, always. We need to be responsible and accountable, but also need to celebrate and cherish our individuality. And we need most important to transform women leaders from a scary concept to an aspirational reality. As Sheryl Sandberg says, A world where half our institutions are run by women and half our homes are run by men would be a far better world.